Well, friends, if you would take your copy of the scripture and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 14. As we continue to make our way through this incredible book, we come this morning to a new city here in Acts chapter 14. We're going to read verses 1 to 7, but before we do, let's ask the Lord to give us the help of His Spirit to understand. Pray with me. Gracious God, we come and we look to You to speak to us through this, Your living and active Word. Would You use it to rouse our souls? Would You, by the power of Your Spirit, grant understanding, grant faith, and grant a desire to walk in the pathway of the light of Jesus? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand as we read God's Word together? <clears throat> Acts 14, 1-7 Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Thus far, God's word, and may he bless it to us. Brethren, please be seated. Last week, amidst the joy, the great joy, of seeing Jesus' saving mercy come to Jew and Gentile in Pisidian Antioch, people craving to hear the Word of God as though the whole city showed up on the Sabbath to listen, we also saw that great hatred towards the Gospel. And the hostility there was so severe that Paul and Barnabas were driven out. The Jewish leaders got the political people involved to kick these preachers of Christ out of town. And as Paul and Barnabas shaked the dust off their feet, They began the 90-mile trek to the southeast along the Roman royal road to a new city, Iconium. Now, from our perspective, Paul and Barnabas are just moving to one more place in modern-day Turkey. But in the Roman era, they are moving from the edge of a region called Phrygia to the commercial center of a Roman province called Galatia. Now, the previous town, Pisidian Antioch, had ties really to both regions, but the next three cities that Luke mentions in Acts 14 are all part of Galatia. Why am I telling you that? Well, Paul is going to write his first letter to the churches of Galatia. Now, interestingly, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul mentions that he came to the Galatians with some kind of bodily ailment. We really have no idea what it is, though many speculate it had something to do with Paul's eyes. He he makes a comment in passing that the people in their service to him would have torn out their eyes and given them to Paul. That could just be a metaphor. We're also not sure if Paul 
first came to this city with affliction, but whatever was going on with him, he lands here at Iconium. But doesn't that add color to the scene? Paul isn't just run out of town. He isn't just already dealing with desertion by John Mark and on the verge of intense persecution. He's also fighting sickness. And yet, Paul labors on. He and Barnabas do what they always do. They seek a synagogue, they preach the gospel, they gather converts. And then the devil does what he always does. Make things as difficult as possible. So what we're going to see in Iconium is a new city, the same story, and we're going to note three things. First, see with me, power and poison. Power and poison. Paul and Barnabas come to this new place. And in spite of the Jewish resistance at Pisidian Antioch, they still go immediately to the synagogue. You see that in verse 1? Now at Iconium, literally, they entered according to the same pattern. That's the sense. They followed the custom to go together into the Jewish synagogue. And that's significant. You remember, Paul had indicated in the previous city, as he spoke to the jealous Jews, the plan of God. It was the divine ordering of God Almighty that they would go first to the Jews. But then when the Jews reject the gospel, Paul and Barnabas move on to the Gentiles. Jewish hatred becomes an occasion for the gospel to go to the grubby Gentiles and unlikely people. But what Luke is showing us here is that plan is not altered with one bad episode with the Jews in a previous city. No, in every city. This is how it's going to be. It is always to the Jew first. And Paul will keep doing that even though the Jews will be the fiercest persecutors he faces. Now I could imagine Paul, much like the prophet Jeremiah, saying in view of all this hostility, I don't want to speak to these people anymore. Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah says, I've become a laughingstock. Everyone mocks me. The word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. And in view of that, Jeremiah says to himself that he's not going to speak anymore in God's name. You can imagine the internal angst, can't you? The word brings you severe trouble, so you decide, I'll just stop talking. But when Jeremiah famously says that, that he had decided to stop talking, He says that God's Word was like a fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot. Well, Paul, I think, is the same way. No matter the trouble he faces, the Gospel of Jesus burns in his soul. So he has to speak. And speak he did. And notice Luke tells us, verse 1, that he and Barnabas spoke in such a way. That is, they spoke with such power that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. This is a very intriguing statement. Because in the previous verses, back up in chapter 13, we had heard about the plan of God and how it was those who were appointed to eternal life who believed. In other words, sinners were saved going from darkness to light because of the sovereignty of God. God chose them. God caused them to be born again. God took enemies and changed them. He opened their hearts. He did it all to the praise of His glorious grace. But then, right after that, Luke points out the means of salvation. The way Paul and Barnabas 
spoke. Now, friends, it's not that Paul and Barnabas can speak people into the kingdom of God. No amount of powerful speech or eloquence can penetrate a stony heart. If God doesn't open the heart, death will abide. It doesn't matter how powerful you talk. You can just as easily show a blind man the light of the sun than you can convince a dead, unregenerate sinner to see the light of Christ. Salvation is never caused by what we do. It is always God's work. He takes out the heart of stone. He gives a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36. However, do you see that God uses means? Paul and Barnabas, when they spoke, didn't say to themselves, God's going to save His people, so we can bring a boring, dull, uninteresting message. We can be as dull as possible. We can just read in a monotone voice with no passion, no liveliness, and the Lord will do what He's going to do because He's going to save His people because that's what He always does. It's true. God will save His people. But salvation in Christ is so captivating, so breathtaking. The offended God sending His own Son that He would bear our sin and shame. The Lord Jesus willingly laying down His life to ransom rebels. Here we are doomed to wrath and we should get wrath. But the Lord loved us and gave Himself up for us. That's amazing. All my evil can be pardoned, thrown into the depths of the sea. I can move from a state of misery to a state of peace and have peace with God that lasts forever. I can go from passing pleasures which leave me empty to the unceasing bliss of knowing God. How can you speak of those things dispassionately with the excitement of reading a phone book? Some of you don't even know what a phone book is. With the excitement of looking at your phone and just reading your contact list. Paul and Barnabas don't speak as those detached from the saving mercy of God in Christ. They feel a burning passion to declare the truth because the truth is in their hearts. So when Paul said they spoke in such a way or in such a manner, he means they were filled with conviction. They were delighting in Christ's unsearchable riches so that they spoke with power, warmth, force, and with the obvious aid of the Holy Spirit. There's a word for this. It's called unction. We don't use that word today, but it means to speak as one anointed, to speak as one equipped by the Spirit and overflowing with His power. Now, brethren, can God save people through a bad and boring sermon? Yes, God can speak through a donkey. Nothing is too difficult for Him. But bad and boring preaching is not the kind of preaching that God ordinarily blesses. Therefore, there should be a pleading with God from the preacher and from the people, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Pray. Pray that words would be given me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then he adds, pray that I may declare the gospel boldly as I ought 
to speak. Note the ought there. There ought to be boldness. Are you praying? When you come to church, are you using your Lord's Day well? Praying the night before, praying as you rise in the, in the morning, not only for your own heart, but that the truth that comes to Him and the man who speaks it would be given power to address my soul. Because Christ is speaking to me. Do I come yearning for the Lord to address me with power? Well, here, there was boldness, zeal, and intensity, and the Lord blessed, for a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. Once more, God is saving sinners through the word preached, because the ordinary means is faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. However, when the Spirit moves, what does the devil do? He immediately causes trouble. Verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Just like Paul's faith roused and passion speech, Jewish, Jewish unbelief here roused rebellion. The Jews are fragrantly disobeying uh, the Gospel. The Gospel's coming to them first and they're totally rejecting it. And then they're aiming to delude the Gentiles. And the sense here is that the Jews pull out all the stops to influence the Gentiles to think embittered thoughts, that's the notion of poisoning, to think embittered thoughts of Paul, Barnabas, and the brothers. Now ordinarily, Jews hate the Gentiles and don't even have the time of day for them. So the fact that these Jews are trying to capture the Gentiles to get them on their side tells us that they're taking this as a threat to them and they take Paul's preaching seriously, but seriously in the wrong way. So that they'll do anything, connect themselves to any people in order to stand against the gospel. This should remind you of the Pharisees joining together with the Sadducees and the Herodians and then even Pilate himself it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thinking. But how grievous it is. Paul has come to preach of forgiveness in Jesus Christ and these Jews hate the very idea of forgiveness. Why do they do that? Because they think they're already clean. And what deception? Because what do these clean Jews do? They claim purity while hoodwinking the Gentiles with a policy of hate-filled verbal assault. They are not interested in the truth. They only want to hold the truth that's according to their own hearts. If you follow your own heart, Disney may say, it'll get you everything you want. The Bible says, Proverbs 28, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. The evil here really should remind us of our modern age. There's an era of freedom for religious inquiry in our day. But if your ideas get in the way of my ideas, all that outward freedom goes down the drain. In fact, totalitarian tactics become the norm. You squash those you don't like. If you don't like what somebody's saying, you just take them out. Paul's not preaching a gospel that is a take-or-leave-it thing. He's preaching only Jesus Christ can save and you must repent and turn to Him. But that very statement, though it's what Jesus Himself had uttered, it's viewed with hostility. Brethren, the devil hates the truth. And he will stir up the sons of disobedience, 
sons of disobedience, to attack the truth. We are often taken aback when we look at our world and see the aggressive animosity people have to Jesus and the gospel. But you shouldn't be surprised. When the power of the gospel is preached with clarity, the devil will use any tactic to shut it down. Poisoning people's minds is just part of the plan. Let's not forget that in our day when folks concoct the most foolish arguments against Christianity and they never reckon with the claims of Christ. But what are we going to do with the poisoning pursuit of the wicked? Are we going to give up? Well, no. We meet the poison with the power of the Word because that's the means that God uses. So see, secondly, boldness and belligerence. Now, the flow of thought here should strike us from verses 2 to 3. Jews have stirred up Gentiles, poisoned their minds to stand against the gospel. So Paul's just going to get out of Dodge, right? No. Instead, verse 3, it says, so, but it's really better. Therefore, because the Jews were poisoning the minds of Gentiles, therefore, they remained for a long time. It's precisely because of the attacks that Paul and Barnabas stay. They don't want to leave the church under this assault. They want to fortify them in the faith so they could stand against this furious opposition. They want to help them, equip them, to resist bad arguments and character assassinations. But then they also wanted to demonstrate to these wicked opponents that the Lord was in fact speaking through them. So they remained, and Luke indicates verse 3, they were speaking boldly for the Lord. They dialed up the intensity, spoke with even greater force and persuasive power. And as they did it, the Lord Himself spoke through them. Notice the grammar in the middle of verse 3. Paul and Barnabas were literally speaking boldly. That's a plural action. Paul and Barnabas are speaking boldly. For the Lord, the Lord who... Now, it's a singular action. The Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace. Now, brethren, it's a ticky grammatical point. But Luke is saying, Jesus is the one who's bearing witness. And how is Jesus bearing witness? Through the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. He's bearing witness to the word of His grace, and then He grants signs and wonders to be done by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. This is another display of the title, the long title for this book I've mentioned to you. Acts is really the acts of the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit by means of the apostles. It's a great Puritan title or something, right? Not a title we want, something simple. Um, Not this long title. This is really what's going on though. Christ is acting through the power of the Holy Spirit in these apostles. Paul and Barnabas are speaking, but Jesus is the one doing stuff. Paul and Barnabas don't have any grace to offer. It's the Lord's grace. It's the word of His grace. These are just ambassadors. And Jesus is testifying through them, not only with the word, but with miracles. Paul Paul and Barnabas don't have the power in themselves to perform miracles. Christ has the power. And He imparts that power to them. And as we've seen previously, whether in Jesus' ministry or that of the apostles in Jerusalem. What is the function of signs and wonders? 
miracles, brethren, are never an end in themselves. Miracles always serve in the Bible to authenticate the truth. Miracles attest the message of salvation. This is the truth. Miracles may draw a crowd. Miracles may garner interest. But miracles do not save souls. Many people have seen miracles performed, even have miracles touch them personally, and yet they still die in unbelief. Can you remember all of the miracles, or at least some of them, performed to the aid of Israel in the wilderness? And yet, virtually all of them die in unbelief. Think of Jesus speaking to the city of Capernaum and saying how Their unbelief, though He had done countless miracles there, is worse than Sodom. Miracles then are not preeminent things. They call attention to the Word of God and His power. They say, if God is doing these great things, you should listen to His servants as they preach the Word, turn from your evil, and trust in the Lord. And in this climate of evil unbelief, the miracles serve another purpose. Like the plagues, through Moses in Egypt, which displayed that Moses really is God's servant, or the miracles performed by Elijah and Elisha, the miracles say here, Paul and Barnabas are not to be disregarded. God is speaking through them. These men are truly messengers of grace. You must listen. Indeed, as the wonders were worked, Paul and Barnabas continued to boldly appeal to people to come to the Lord. However, like in Egypt, Hardness remains. Look at verse 4. After seeing signs and wonders, the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now we probably think, well, if I saw Paul heal people, cast out demons or something, cure sickness, it didn't matter what poison had been put into my mind. Surely, surely, I would have heard Paul and gone with Him. Well, some do that. But many folks are still siding with the unbelieving Jews. That's shocking, isn't it? But brethren, stubborn unbelief works like this. The blindness of the blind remains. There were people in Egypt who still went with Pharaoh to chase down the Israelites after all the ten plagues. There were people opposing Moses in the wilderness even after everything Moses had done. There were people who saw fire come down and consume an altar on and the sacrifice on Mount Carmel in the Elijah versus the prophets of Baal episode. And then the people associated with Baal worship keep doing Baal worship. It doesn't make any sense. But brethren, that's the thing we must realize. Sin is never logical. Sin doesn't make sense. Sin always twists the truth, always deceives. So sinful responses like this, while completely foolish, will keep happening as long as there's sin in the world. What's the lesson that we need to learn here? One commentator puts it this way, neither miracles nor persuasive argument can affect conversion without the secret work of God's Spirit called regeneration. 
It doesn't matter if Jesus is raised from the dead or Jesus is the preacher. Unless God opens the heart to the truth, people will still reject it. That's sobering. And it should cause us to pray to the Lord to rescue sinners by His power because He alone can do it. So here, these attesting miracles accompanying Paul's bold speech really function something like parables. To those to whom the mysteries of the kingdom of God have been given, granted by grace, they see the miracles and their faith is deepened. But for those on the outside who are already blind, they grow harder still. God's Word never returns to Him void. It either softens the heart and draws you in, or it leaves you in a position of hardness. Again, this is a sober thing. What's going on in our hearts this morning? Do you hear the Word of Jesus' grace and yet still withdraw from Him and remain in your sin? Or do you find that your faith is increasing and sin grows increasingly distasteful to you? Do you see all the evidence of God's power and shrink back from full communion with Him? Or do you have a love that abounds to Him? The point is, don't hear bold preaching and brush it off without repentance. Because the day may come when the mercy of God no longer meets you with a gospel message. Repent now. And yet, dear Christians, I want you to see that Paul and Barnabas don't let opposition and unbelief stop them. They press on with the truth because they're convinced it is the truth. Are you convinced? Are you willing to stand on the Lord's side when men rise up to resist? Are you praying that there will be bold speech for Christ even when the wicked are whipped up into fury? And maybe there needs to be a particular application here to the elders among us. The elders among us, we're not apostles, and the Lord is not continuing to authenticate the presence of the kingdom through signs and wonders. It was authenticated 2,000 years ago. We don't need ongoing authentication. It is the truth. But are we elders willing to stick with the people and boldly speak when the fire of trouble burns hot? Will we stand with the saints and teach and teach and teach so that they are rooted and grounded in the truth? Will we watch over them with care and exhort them to faithfulness so that in the evil day they can stand? Do You see, Paul and Barnabas are following their good shepherd. They're not hirelings who abandon the sheep. They fight for God's people. Now, again, we're not apostles, brothers. But may we have the same determination never to back down from declaring the truth. Now, we don't speak the truth belligerently to the belligerent. We speak the truth in love. But let us never back down from that task. Brothers, is that the kind of steadfastness we have? Well, finally, see with me. Fleeing in faithfulness. The initial determination of Paul and Barnabas to remain a long time with the people doesn't mean there's never a time to leave. Look at verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, 
They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, and then they'll go on to some other towns. As at Pisidian Antioch, the evil rabble get the politicians involved. That's going to be an emerging pattern in the Gentile world where the rulers of these various cities will be called on to stand against the gospel. We are nowhere near yet an empire-wide persecution. But as things build in places like modern-day Turkey, including cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, Ephesus, on to Greece like Thessalonica, in all of these places, the government will join forces with the wicked to attack the church. Satan doesn't only stir up religious sects to hate the gospel. He also aims to pull in the secular or pseudo-religious political leaders to turn up the heat against the gospel. The state, Revelation 13, the beast from the sea, will show us, just as it did in Babylon, that Satan uses government as an instrument to attack God's people. It may not always be lion's dens and fiery furnaces for us, but mistreatment that could well up to death is what Satan is after. And here he uses it in stirring Jew and Gentile with the rulers, not just to mistreat as in harass, but to stone Paul and Barnabas. So here's the question. Do they stay and die or do they leave? Well, Luke tells us Paul and Barnabas, hearing of the plot, fled to other cities. Now, as they flee, it must be said, when we see Paul later in life and he's facing the executioner's sword, it's pretty obvious to us that Paul doesn't flee anyone, anywhere, anytime out of fear. Paul isn't running because he's only concerned about his safety. He will repeatedly risk his life to preach the gospel. Go read 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul chronicles his suffering in the early years of ministry. He's not a man just trying to save his own skin. But there's a time to stand and die and there's a time to retreat to another place that gospel work might continue. How are we to know the time? Well, for Paul, the Lord by His Spirit will reveal when Paul is to face his end. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul's last letter, he will have a faith-filled resignation to the providence of God appointed for him that he will die under execution for the gospel. But until the Lord reveals clearly by His providence, Christ's servants should always pursue the path of ongoing usefulness. Brethren, this comes up in the history of missionaries. I'm thinking of one of my favorites, the story of John G. Payton on that cannibalistic island in the 1800s in the South Pacific called Tana. Payton ministered there for four years against constant persecution. He bore with, this is just a summary, the destruction of his stuff, stealing, threats, armed surveillance, like guys walking around with a gun aimed at him the whole time, shots fired, axes thrown at his head, knives drawn, having to have his dog save him in certain situations. It was a pretty rough calling. However, there was a time when it was evident that the natives had declared war on him and were coming to kill him. They had already murder, murdered other missionaries on the island. 
And Peyton determined it was time to live and go on working for Jesus rather than die a martyr's death. Well, once Peyton made a harrowing escape with the Lord providing in in incredible ways, the critics in Scotland came out with knives. They told him, you should have stayed at your post and died. Here's how Peyton responded. God knows that I did not refuse to die For I stood at the post of duty amid difficulty and danger till all hope had fled, till everything I had was lost. And note this phrase, till God in answer to prayer sent a means of escape. I left with a clear conscience, knowing in doing so, I was following God's leading. Peyton really says, if I stayed, it would be like killing myself. Self-murder. I think Paul and Barnabas, though Luke doesn't tell us the inner workings in their discussion, I think they felt the same way. The Lord had called them to a Gentile mission to carry the gospel to the end of the earth. They've barely gotten started. So while to stay and die might seem triumphalistic, manly or something, it wouldn't be in keeping with their calling. They had more work to do, more preaching before them. So fleeing was not faithless. Actually, it was the exercise of a faithful commitment to go on proclaiming Jesus. So they fled, heading 21 miles to Lystra, then 55 miles to Derby, then additional stops amidst the surrounding countryside. And what do they do as they go to all these places? Verse 7, they continued to preach the gospel. Brethren, If fear drove them out, they would have gone somewhere to lay low. They would have gone dark. They wouldn't keep poking the bear, bringing the gospel to confront the devil. But that's exactly what they do. For they are not terrorized by Satan's tactics. They will serve the Lord who bound the strong man, who defeated him who held the power of death, who has overthrown the devil. Satan still rages, that's true, but his power is not ultimate. Jesus is king. So no resistance will ever make them go mute. Brother, this is a striking display of courage. And I want you to close with this thought with me. This is not mere human bravado. The faithful pursuit here is to do the duty conscious of the Lord's help and nearness when everything is frightening. And the fright factor is going to turn up quite a bit in the next story. But Paul, like his Savior, will not back down from the mission. Now it's highly unlikely that any of us are going to face cannibals ready to kill us for the gospel. It's highly unlikely that we're going to have people ready to stone us for the sake of the gospel. We're probably never going to have to make a decision Do I stand and die or do I flee? But the situation, the choice we may face is this. Will I go on speaking for Christ when there's dogged opposition? Will I stick to my calling? Will I show myself a faithful follower of Jesus by testifying of His Gospel no matter what? And yes, there may be time to move on where you no longer cast your pearl before swine. But will you keep serving Jesus Christ? 
That is Paul's faithful focus. For you remember his motto? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. My life is about knowing Christ, loving Christ, and serving Christ, and I will do it till I die, and then it only gets better. Is that our perspective? Brother, may we have this kind of gospel tenacity in any and every circumstance. Whatever calling we have as a preacher or just someone who loves Jesus and lives for Him, may we shine with Christ's light no matter the trouble that comes against us. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we come before You and we bless You for the Word of Your grace. That grace has come to awaken our souls to life in Christ. And we pray that tasting the sweet grace of Jesus, that we would stand firm for the Lord Jesus, that we would always speak the truth of Christ. Would You equip us to do this? Would You help our elders in particular that we would be faithful men who relentlessly care for the flock, speaking the truth to them in love, no matter the opposition that comes against us. Lord, we commit ourselves to You and to Your grace, and we pray that You would empower our godly living by Your Spirit's help. And we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.